comes to preach our children ages three and four and kindergarten through fifth grade can head off to Children's Church at this time. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I mean, it's great to see you today. I'm so glad you're here. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, would you please open up to the book of Romans? And we're going to be in Romans chapter 7 today. If you're new with us, uh, I want to encourage you to, if you don't have a Bible with you, to use one of those black ones in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, Our study of Romans sometimes is a little intricate, and today in particular, it will be helpful for you if you've got a copy of the Bible open and, and you can look at it with your own eyes. And if you're new to the Bible and you're using that pew Bible, you'll find Romans chapter 7 on page 1002, page 1002 in the pew Bible. Uh, While you're turning there, um, one quick little tidbit of information is this. Uh, Our worship director, Jennifer Bull, is about to take an extended leave on sabbatical. We've been sharing this news for the last several weeks now. I just want to make sure that it's on your radar. Uh, Next Sunday will be Jennifer's last Sunday with us before she's out uh, through most of the summer weeks. She'll be back at the end of August And we're really excited uh, for her to have a time to rejuvenate, to put her mind in a different space, to be able to address uh, different matters related to her ministry, uh, that just the day-to-day grind of, of, of her normal routines doesn't allow her to think about or to focus on. And so we're excited for her to rest, excited for her to be re-energized, excited for her to apply herself to new projects, and uh, we're going to miss her while she's gone. She's lined up from within our church Um, four different people who are going to help lead us in worship through the summer weeks and uh, and her musicians as well uh, on board to help lead us from Sunday to Sunday. And so I just want to make sure that's on your radar so you can, one, pray for Jennifer and her husband Chris uh, while she's on sabbatical. Then also pray for and encourage uh, our instrumentalists and those who will be leading us in worship. And let's do that right now together. Let's pray. Father, this is a prayer you've heard uh, over and over from me, from us. It's a prayer of gratitude for Jennifer Bull. We are grateful for her ministry leadership. We are grateful for her sincere faith. We are grateful for her care for all of us. We are grateful that in her ministry, she makes much of you. So that when we leave here on Sundays, we're, we're able to brag about who you are and what you've done for us uh, through Christ on the cross. Thank you for uh, a woman with a heart like that, with abilities like that, with a passion like that. Lord, we praise you for her ministry leadership. And uh, Lord, we're grateful that uh, she gets an extended period of time to rest and to be re-energized and rejuvenated. And Lord, we pray that all of your good purposes would be accomplished in Jennifer uh, over the course of those 12 weeks. And Lord, I'm grateful that we have within our church family uh, brothers and sisters who are willing to fill in the gap and to lead us in worship uh, over that time. Lord, I pray that you would uh, encourage them in their preparation and in their leadership as well. Lord, I pray that they would lead us out of the overflow of their own praise and love for you so that this is not a chore or a duty for them, but just the natural overflow of a life that's captured by you. Father, thank you 
for giving us a worshiping church, a, wor a church that's captured by a vision of your majesty and your greatness and your glory, a church that's been moved and transformed by the gospel that we've experienced. God, we praise you for all you're doing and working in us. And now, God, give us understanding for your word today. These six verses uh, um, uh, have real power in them. And Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, that we might be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 is where we're going to spend our time today. I have a question for you, a, a theological question of sorts. Here it is. If people are saved by God's grace, then what is our relationship to God's law? It's a question that has been asked a lot over the course of Christian history, maybe worded in different ways. We might word it this way, if I'm saved by grace, do I have to keep all the rules? Uh, or what's the relationship between keeping the rules that God has laid down in my salvation and my sanctification? It's common to find people answer this question by wavering between two extremes. One group says, well, we're saved by grace as long as we keep God's law. And the other group says, well, since we're saved by grace, well, Christians are not required to keep God's law. It doesn't matter how you live as long as your heart belongs to Jesus. Uh, we've got names for these two different views, and they're words that we're going to use a lot this morning. The view that binds people to God's law is called legalism. And you might be familiar with that term. It's a term that has been used quite a bit throughout the course of the history of the church. A uh, simple definition of legalism for our purposes this morning. Legalism means that we are bound to the law, bound to God's law, or take God out of the equation, just bound to a moral law of our own making. The other term, the other group that we might not be as familiar with is characterized by this word antinomianism or antinomian. You're going to hear me use that word a lot today. I apologize if it sounds pretentious, but there's no better word to use than this right here. Antinomianism, what does it mean? Well, you're familiar with the concept even if you didn't know the word for it. And in fact, the word antinomianism isn't found in the Bible. It was created by the church reformer Martin Luther. He took these two Greek words and put them together to make this one word that we use today. The Greek word anti, which means against. We know that one. The word nomos means law, so against the law. Antinomianism says that we are, we are opposed to the law of God, its rule on our lives. Because God's grace is so powerful and so freeing and so mighty, that means we're not bound to keep God's law anymore. Paul addresses both of these issues in his letter to the Romans. In chapters 1 through 5, where we've studied already, Paul has addressed legalism quite a bit. And you've seen that as well, haven't you? He, he's addressed legalism actually by saying some shocking things about God's law. In chapter 3, verse 20, he said that God has disclosed righteousness apart from the Mosaic law. That's a stunning announcement. In chapter 4, verse 15, he said the law actually brings God's wrath. That's incredible. And then in chapter 5, verse 20, he said the law actually caused sin to increase. And for those original hearers who came from Jewish backgrounds, 
That sounded accusatory. It sounded like nonsense. How can the law of God lead to more sin? These are startling claims. So that left the legalist asking some really hard questions of Paul. And those questions show up in chapter 6 that we just finished studying a couple of weeks ago. In chapter 6, verse 1, the question is asked, should people then multiply their sin so God's grace can multiply? It's an antinomian question. If, If I sin more and grace increases, should I then sin more and more and more to usher in grace? Paul says, absolutely not. A similar question is asked in chapter 6, verse 15. Since we're covered by grace, should we sin all we want? Again, Paul says, no, that's not the answer. That's not what I'm getting at. It's here in chapter 6 that Paul shuts down antinomianism. So Paul has said the legalists are wrong and the antinomians are wrong. How can they both be wrong? What is the believer's relationship to the law of God? Here's my overgeneralization for how churches have chosen to approach this question. We've made tribes of the two groups, and you have to choose your tribe. The legalistic tribe values holiness above all. The antinomian tribe values grace above all. The legalistic tribe might choose as their mascot the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah chapter 6 stands in the throne room of God and he hears the angels singing back and forth to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They didn't sing grace, 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 love, love, love. They sang holy, holy, holy. That might be the legalist's mascot. The antinomians might choose as their mascot the thief on the cross who heard Jesus say, today you'll be with me in paradise. That guy didn't keep a single rule, didn't go to a membership class. He wasn't confirmed. He wasn't baptized. He died on a cross, and he heard Jesus say, you'll be with me today in paradise. The legalists accused the antinomians of being liberal affirmers of sin. The the antinomians accused the legalists of being fundamentalist accusers of sinners. The legalists yell, obey more, and the antinomians yell, love more, And who's right? Which tribe do you belong to? What tribe does South Shore Baptist Church belong to? Paul settles this issue for us in Romans chapter 7 on the whole. But in our passage this morning, just verses 1 through 6, he gives us a basic principle and an illustration that helps clarify a believer's relationship to God's law. That's the question that's driving our study this morning. What is our relationship to God's law? Are we bound to obey it or are we free from obeying it? So my goal today is to empower you to serve God with greater joy by explaining your relationship to the law. If we understand our relationship to God's law, the result will be joyful service to God. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, 
A married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. Then, if she's married to another man, she's not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Preaches itself. That's great. Have a good day. We'll see you next Sunday. Man, I wish. Um, we we got to do some work today. And I'm going to need you tracking with me. I'm going to do my best to be clear. We're going to approach this passage in a little bit of a different way than what we would normally do on a Sunday. But I trust that um, this approach is going to help make this passage just as clear as possible um, for you. And so uh, what we're going to look at this morning, Paul gives us a principle. He gives us an illustration. He gives us the application of that illustration. And then he gives us the resolution to our problem. That's the structure of, the, of this passage, and we're just going to walk through that structure in pursuit of an answer to the question, what is a believer's relationship to the law? The principle, the illustration, the application, and the resolution uh, to all of this. Let's start with the principle. What is the principle that Paul gives us to answer this question? It's found in verse 1. Look at your Bible with me. Verse 1, here's the principle. Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? What's a believer's relationship to the law, Paul? Well, the law rules over a person as long as a person lives. This is the basic principle. People are bound by laws as long as they are alive or until you've paid your estate tax upon your passing. You're free from the law when you are no longer alive. But as long as you're alive, you're bound by the law. This is a common sense principle. It is also a spiritual principle. Those who are alive are bound by the law. Now, for our purposes, our interest is in the word alive. What, what does that mean? I, I, I mean, all of us in this room have hearts pumping, lungs working. We're alive. So what does it mean that to be alive means to be bound by the law? Well, in order to help us understand this principle better, Paul next gives us an illustration. This was the principle. Second is the illustration. So I want you to look with me again, verses 2 and 3. Here's the illustration that helps explain the principle. For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law regarding the husband. We get that. That's a clear uh, illustration of the principle he's just given us. Verse 3, so then if she's married to another man while her husband is living, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. Then if she's married to another man, she's not an adulteress. Okay? So it might help if we take a look at the cast of characters uh, in this illustration. We have the woman and we have the law 
And we have husband number one and we have husband number two. Paul makes the point that a woman is legally bound to her husband while her husband is alive. Now, if, if you just, if you read through this really fast, an easy mistake to make would be you might think, well, husband number one is the law, but that's not correct. Husband number one is husband number one, and the law is the binder that holds the woman and husband number one together. And so should husband number one pass, she's no longer legally bound to him. With his passing, the law that would bind her to him vaporizes. It's no more. And so now if her husband is passed, she's free from that law to marry another if she so chooses. But what if husband number one is still alive, the law binding woman and husband number one is still in place, but she decides, I'm going to marry husband number two, and I'll have a brother husband. What if she chooses to do that? Big problems. She can't just say, I'm going to ignore the law and do what I want. She's legally bound to husband number one. So far, Paul's told us that When we are alive, we're bound to the law. What does this have to do with our relationship to God and His law? That's what comes next. He's given us the principle. Here's the illustration. A woman, husband, law. Let's apply it to our spiritual lives now. Look at verse 4. Here's the application. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to Him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, let's go back to our cast of characters. When we first read this illustration, what character did we assume represented us? The woman. We put ourselves in that illustration in the place of the woman. We are the woman, and we are legally bound to husband number one. However, when Paul gives this application, Paul identifies us with someone else in the story. Right? Look at what Paul said in verse 4. He said, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so you can belong to another. So wait. Who was put to death in the illustration? Husband number one is the one that dies. And Paul says in verse 4, you, reader, you were put to death. So are we the woman in the illustration? Yeah. And are we also husband number one in the illustration? Yeah. And now is your brain doing like this kind of thing right here? Yeah, it is. Why? Because we like exact representation in our analogies. I'm this, and you're that, and this is that, and this is how it all works. But but this is not what Paul's doing. He's not giving us an analogy. He's giving us an illustration that is malleable. And in this illustration, we are are represented by not one person, but by two persons. We are like both the woman and husband number one, the deceased husband. How is that so? Let's start with the husband. How are we believers like husband number one? We are like husband number one in his death. And specifically in our death to sin, we are like husband number one in his death in this 
illustration. We are like the husband in that as believers, we have experienced our own death through our union with Christ. Do you remember what we read a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 6? A passage that talks about our death to our sinful selves. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. That old self, husband number one. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Here's what's going to mess with your mind. In this illustration, we are married to ourselves. We are the woman and we are husband number one. We are married to our sinful selves. In our sinful self, we are bound to our sinful self by the law of God until we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we experience union with Him. And then, when our faith is in Him, we have died to our sinful self. That old sinful Cody is dead and no more. The law that bound me to sinful Cody is now vaporized and I'm free to be remarried to another and that's Christ. Are you with me now? Our sinful self is the one that dies in this illustration. And now, remember a couple of weeks ago, I gave you this illustration to help us make sense of what it means to experience union with Christ. The language that's used in the New Testament over and over is that we are in Christ the same way a passenger might be in an airplane. And what's true for that airplane is going to be true for you on that trip. And so if that airplane makes it to its destination, you make it to the destination as well. And in the same way, to be in Christ means that whatever is true for Jesus is true for us. Christ died, we died. Christ rose from the dead, we are raised from the dead. Christ is victorious over sin, we are victorious over sin. Christ is loved, we are loved. That's what union with Christ is like. And so, we're like husband number one in that by faith in Christ, we die to our old sinful selves. The law that bound us to our old sinful selves, we're now released from it, and now we're free to be married to another. That's how we're like husband number one in the story is that we die. The antinomian has to get this down. The person who says, I'm free to live however I want, to do whatever I want, has to understand this point. Does a Christian get to indulge in sin since they're under grace, since they have died to their sinful selves? Are we free to live however we want according to our own accord? No, we've died to our sinful self. If our sinful self is dead, our life of sin is dead. Let the antinomian understand. How are we like the woman? We are like the woman in her remarriage. In Paul's illustration, if we are the woman, who is our first husband? We just said that. Our first husband is our sinful selves. If you were to answer, the law is our first husband, again, that's incorrect. Our first husband is our sinful selves. And so the law binds us to that first husband, our first sinful self. And Paul has already said as much. Again, back in Romans chapter 6, verse 18, he said, Having been set free from sin 
There's our first marriage, the dissolution of our first marriage. Having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. There's our second marriage. Before our union with Christ, we were slaves to sin. We were bound to sin. Our own sin was our first husband. But because of our union with Christ, we are free from our first marriage to sin. And now we have a new marriage to Christ. It's a union marked by righteousness. It's, it's a union that bears fruit for Christ. So is a Christian bound by the law? No. We're free from the law that bound us to our sin and now we belong to Christ by His grace. Legalist, you've got to get this in your brain. We are free from the law that would bind us to our sinful selves. That's the application. But Paul's not done yet. He wants to make sure that we get all of this down and brings this argument to a resolution. And he does that in verses 5 and 6. And in verses 5, excuse me, in verse 5, He's going to speak to the legalist. In verse 6, he's going to speak to the antinomian to help bring all of this together. So look at verse 5 with me. He says, For when we were in the flesh, sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, in the flesh? When we were in the flesh. Well, he's describing our pre-faith condition or our first marriage to our own sin, our union with our sinful selves. We were in the flesh. Now we're in Christ, but then we were in the flesh. We were under Adam, if you remember Romans chapter 5. We weren't under Christ yet. And he says in verse 5 here, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit death. So what was this first marriage like? Well, it was a marriage in which the law that bound us to our sinful selves inflamed sin in us. So much so that our life bore fruit of death apart from Christ. In the flesh, I lived for myself and I was a disaster of a human being bearing fruit for death apart from my created purpose. So in my marriage to my own sin, the law that held me there was like a gasoline on the fire of my sin. The law did not kill my sinful self. The law only intensified my sin so much so that my life just spiraled out of control in sin. And so this is death for legalism. The legalist says the law will give us life. Wrong. The law produces death. The legalist thinks that the solution for our sin is more law. And they're thinking more law equals less sin. They're horrifically wrong. More law results in more sin. When my sinful self looks at the law of God, my sinful self does not bow in submission. It rebels. It consumes. Sin in us is so powerful. We see the law of God and that which is good and that which was given for our holiness, we use for greater and greater sin. The legalist among us is horrifically wrong. Law does not remove sin, does not quiet sin, does not stifle sin. The law of God, because our sin is so gross, the law of God actually stokes sin in us. 
But by God's grace, we aren't bound to legalism anymore. Look at what verse 6 says. He says, but now we have been released from the law. Since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the old letter of the law. First spouse, sinful self, now dead through our union with Christ. And the law that intensified my sinful self is gone also. And now, I'm no longer in the flesh, I'm in Christ. And by God's grace, in my union with Christ, I'm empowered to serve God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is death for antinomianism. The antinomian says, well, we're under grace, so we don't have to worry about obedience. Wrong. That makes no logical sense. It has no biblical support. We aren't saved from sin, so we can sin. We are saved from sin to serve the God of our salvation. If we had a legalist and an antinomian in the same room, we could ask this question of them. We would say, hey, legalist, what is it that antinomians get wrong? What do they not understand? And the legalist would say, say this, they don't understand the law of God. And we could ask the antinomian, hey, what does the legalist not understand? What do they get wrong? And the antinomian would say, they don't understand the law of God. And they're both wrong. What they don't understand is the grace of God. Both legalists and antinomians get God's grace wrong. Let me give you an example. I told this story before because it's one of my favorites, uh, but applied it in a different way. Uh, I got my first speeding ticket as a teenager, and uh, I was in our family car, raised by a single dad with three brothers, um, and our family car was a 1989 Ford Mustang GT. It had glass packs. It rumbled. Uh, it was a five-speed manual. That thing moved. It was so fast. And when we were driving with Dad, we drove the speed limit. But when Dad was not with us, it was green light racing every time. And one night, I was driving the car, and I had two of my brothers with me, and I was going fast. I got pulled over. I got a ticket. And this was my first time. I was, so, I was scared in the moment, and then I knew uh, I've, I've got to go face my dad. And uh, my dad had threatened us. If you speed and you get a ticket, here's the consequences. And uh, I, it's not like I can, I can't hide this. I've got two snitches in the back seat. <laughs> They're not on my side, not for a moment. They are so happy at this moment. So I know when I walk in the house, I just, I got to own it right then and there. So I walked in the house. Uh, and I hand my dad the ticket, and he said, what's this? And so I told him the story. And uh, I was emotional about it. I was scared. I was still rattled. And then my dad stood up, and he walked over to me. I've been 6'4 since I was a high school senior. My dad's been 5'8 since he was a high school senior. And so my dad reached up, and he grabbed me on both sides of my head, and then he pulled me down, and he kissed me on the forehead. And he said, are you okay? And I said, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he said, don't let this happen again. I said, okay, it won't. 
And I, I didn't get another speeding ticket uh, until I was out of the house. But at least for then, I, I, I obeyed what he said. How would legalist Cody have responded in that situation? Maybe like this. I walk in with the ticket in one hand and a list of all of my good driving records in the other hand. Dad, I got this ticket, but you need to give me grace for this because of all the good I've already done. Here's all the times I didn't speed. Here's all the times I, was, uh, I used my blinker. Here's all the times I did things right. Not only should you forgive me for this, you should pay the debt that I've accrued by my law breaking. Why does that not work? It doesn't work because although I've done some good, I'm a law breaker in the moment. How would antinomian Cody have responded in that situation? My dad would have kissed me on the forehead and said, don't do it again. And I would have gone out and jumped in that car and gone straight back to speeding. I've been forgiven of my sin, so I can speed all I want now. Uh, my debt's been wiped away. I can drive however I want, ignore all the laws, ignore, because I have my Father's grace for this moment. But instead of a grace earned by works like a legalist, I received grace as a gift. And instead of abusing grace to justify more speeding like an antinomian, my dad's grace motivated my obedience. Do you see how these things are coming together? A theologian named Sinclair Ferguson has written a book called The Whole Christ. I would recommend it highly to you. It's a little dense. It's not long, but it's dense. But he addresses the issues between antinomianism and legalism. And I want you to look at what he said about the relationship between the two. Antinomianism and legalism are non-identical twins that emerge from the same womb. Antinomianism and legalism are not so much opposed to each other as they are both opposed to grace. This is why Scripture never prescribes one as the antidote for the other. Rather, grace, God's grace in Christ, and our union with Christ is the antidote to both. So who's right? The legalist or the antinomian? They're both wrong. They don't understand the problem. The problem is that they abuse the grace of God and they are missing the solution, which is union with Christ. Whether Paul is dealing with legalism or antinomianism, he prescribes the same gospel solution. It's union with Christ so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. We have covered some deep theological ground this morning. We've covered it in a passage that only gets preached if you're preaching verse by verse through the book of Romans. No one's picking this on a random Sunday. But do you understand the richness of God's word as it matures our understanding of the gospel? Answers the question for us, what is our relationship to the law? That's the question we started with. What is our relationship to the law? Here's my answer from Romans chapter 7. It's a little wordy, but it gets the job done. What's our relationship to the law? What's a believer's relationship to the law? When our sin nature encounters God's law, our sin is multiplied. However, 
Through our union with Christ, our sinful self dies. We are unchained from the law, and we are bound to Christ so we can serve God in the power of the Spirit. Which are you? Are you an antinomian or a legalist? What should you be? You should be united with Christ. And it's possible that you are indeed united with Christ, and yet you are holding on to these heretical theologies. Do you understand the danger of doing this? Of all the problems that these heresies bring about, the greatest, in my opinion, is the way in which they despise the cross of Christ. Neither type of person or neither type of heresy feels that the cross has any real effect on their salvation. They deny the power of the cross to save and the power of the cross to sanctify. In these dark systems, people are neither free from the penalty of sin nor the power of sin. But when I'm united with Christ by faith and my sin is dead and Christ's life is mine, then, then I will love and serve the Father as I should with full joy and faith. And that service to God is not a new legalism. Someone really snarky might just say real quick, oh, you're just saying cast away one set of rules for another set of rules and old legalism for a new legalism. That's not at all what it is. It, it wasn't legalism for Jesus to do everything His Father commanded Him. And nor is it for us. But rather, it's true freedom and true joy to see Christ as the life of the law. The law of God has been fulfilled in Christ. And now that fulfillment is repeated in us as we live in the power of the Spirit to serve God. A little bit ago, I quoted Sinclair Ferguson from his book, The Whole Christ. And there's one more quote I want to share with you near the end of his book. He shines light on our two marriages by speaking of the two brothers from Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And in that story, the younger son who goes to a far-off land, he has an antinomian heart. And the older brother who stays at dad's farm, he has the legalist heart. And I want you to look at what Ferguson says. He says, the antinomian prodigal, when awakened, was tempted to legalism. I will go and be a slave in my father's house and thus perhaps gain grace in his eyes. But he was bathed in his father's grace and set free to live as an obedient son. The legalistic older brother never tasted his father's grace. Because of his legalism, he had never been able to enjoy the privileges of the father's house. Between them stood the father offering free grace to both without prior qualifications in either. Had the older brother embraced his father, he would have found grace that would make every duty a delight and dissolve the hardness of his servile heart. Had that been the case, his once antinomian brother would surely have felt free to come out to him as his father had done and say, isn't the grace we have been shown and given simply amazing? Let us forevermore live in obedience to every wish of our gracious father. And arm in arm, they could have gone in to dance at that party, sons and brothers together, a glorious testimony to the father's love. Brothers and sisters, we have been set free by the Father's grace. 
So let us live forevermore in obedience to every wish of our gracious Father. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to speak directly to you for just a couple of minutes. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I mean, you haven't put your trust in Him for your salvation, here's your spiritual reality. You are still in your first marriage, so to speak. You are still bound to your sinful self. And you would say, well, no, I'm not because I'm at church today. No, no I'm not because I, I, I've been in church before. No, no, I'm not because I'm a good person. And I know people who are worse than me. And no, I'm not because I, I intend well and I think well and I, and I do some good things. And the more you appeal to the law, the more your sin is inflamed. More law doesn't mean less sin. So friend, you, you, you're stuck in this marriage of death. And you are powerless on your own to do anything to change it. But here's the good news. You are loved by your heavenly Father. Sinner that you are. Rebel against His law that you are. You are loved by Him. And so God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to die the death required for you so you could be free from that old body of sin and be united to Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the one and only perfect sacrifice for your sin. No one else can do for you what Jesus has done for you because He is fully God and fully man. Has to be fully man because he has to really live and really die. And he has to be fully God for his death to be effective for your salvation. He's perfect, sinless, totally righteous. He is the holy, holy, holy one. And he died as your substitute because he loves you. He died accountable for your sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And his promise to you is that if you will turn and put your faith in him, You'll be forgiven. You'll be set free from that law that bound you to your old sinful self. That old sinful self is dead and you are raised to a new life in Jesus Christ if you will say yes to Jesus at his invitation. And his invitation is coming to you now, today, through this word. And so I, I invite you today, not to put it off, but to turn your life to Jesus Christ so that you could be bound to Him and serve God in the power of the Spirit, and your life will be a glorious testimony to the Father's love. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this word to us and for the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Thank You for the gift of new life. Thank You that our old sinful self is dead not dying, and we're not in a battle with it, dead and gone by our union with Christ. We praise you for so great a salvation as this. Father, I ask that you would give your strength to my brothers and sisters, that in our understanding of the gospel, we would not be bound anymore by minds that are legalistic or minds that are antinomianism, by any sort of mind that would despise your grace, but rather through our union with Christ we would serve you in the newness of the Spirit. Let that be the identity of South Shore Baptist Church and all of us who gather under this name, that we would be grace-impacted people serving you in the power of the Spirit. 
And God, this morning, would you bring new life to the one who has heard and believed, whose heart has been turned to you by your grace. Father, thank you for bringing salvation to all those who call on the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.